All rise. All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and, and Associate, Associate Justices, Justices of the Supreme Court of the Court of North All Carolina. All of our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court. God save the state and this honorable court. Hello and welcome to All Things Judicial, a podcast of the North Carolina Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office, and today we take a look back at 2021 and share some highlights from popular All Things Judicial episodes. We produced 25 episodes last year, which are all available on our website at nccourts.gov. Stay with us as we take a look back at 2021 and keep all things judicial. In this episode's first highlight of 2021, we focus on the Human Trafficking Commission. Commission Executive Director Christine Long begins by asking a question of Commission member Dina Joy about how children are vulnerable to the crime of human trafficking. Ms. Long speaks first in this segment. One of the things we also often hear is, is people that think when they first hear of human trafficking that it's a victimless crime. And I know from where you sit and what you do every day, you feel very much opposite of that. Um, do you have some stories or situations or examples you can give that kind of demonstrate um, this crime and the harm it causes. Absolutely. So um, there is one child that I certainly will share some information around. And I think the other part to touch on is that people um, like to also see this as the movie Taken, right? So it's kids that are traveling somewhere, they're on vacation. In the movie Taken, they're abroad, and these two kids are kind of taken by foreign abductors and then sold into, into sex slavery. And that's not the reality of what we see play out here. And oftentimes what we see here are kids that are actually citizens of the United States, so it's not foreign-born children. About 88% of the children are actually coming out of our foster care system. One in seven children that are reported on the National Exploitation and Missing Children's um, hotline actually are targeted and then trafficked by people in this country. And so it's children that we know well. It's our children. It's children that were born here. It's children that are citizens of the United States. And so for this particular kid um, and her story, I think it will ring true for that And that this child came from a very loving two-parent home. Her parents were married. She was living with her parents at the time. Um, they actually got in a fight over someone that she wanted to date that her parents did not believe was in her best interest. It made her angry. She was grounded. And so she skipped school the following day and ran away from home. She had every intention when she made that plan of running away from home to be with this person that she also went to school with. So it was another kid that she went to school with that she wanted to date. At the time that she made that decision, she was moving from friend to friend's homes, just trying to find somewhere to live. And within a couple of weeks, she actually ran out of locations to go to and was told by one of her friends, hey, my cousin happens to work in this location where he will actually pay you to go on dates. And she assumed that meant 
like the average date that you and I would go on to the movies or to dinner. And when she got there, she realized it actually was an escort service. And she was there for four days um, as part of this escort service. And in her words, was asked to do things that were unspeakable. She decided to leave and come home. She left on a Greyhound bus coming back home. And that actually is where her trafficking started. So she met her trafficker on the Greyhound bus. This person talked with her the entire way home, got to know her really well, got to know her story, got to know why it was she left home originally, and she felt a real connection to this person that made promises to make her dreams come true. And she truly believed that this person was going to be the person that she spent the rest of her life with. And from there, she talks about being taken to a hotel where he taught her about Backpage. He taught her about how to make money on Backpage. Um, And she was doing those things to please him believing that they were going to live this happily ever after white picket fence life and the longer it went on the more she realized it was never going to be different and it was never going to be that dream and she didn't know how to get out at that point Um, she luckily at one point he actually left to go do laundry um, and she realized I have to get out of here and she took off um, to get to the police and actually get the help that she needed and was taken home Yes, we've heard similar stories to that so many times, um, and it really does highlight kind of the vulnerability that all of our kids, all kids have. Absolutely. Um, And how really easy it can be to be exploited, especially when you are a minor. Um, Can you think of any other situations of vulnerabilities or um, instances So I think vulnerability um, is really key here and that it's the easy way to talk about prevention with trafficking because when you look at people that are trafficked, there are multiple circumstances that made them vulnerable to the person that then became their offender. And it's the unequal access to power that then leads to the crime itself. And so when you look about vulnerability from a kid's lens, you look not only at kids that are still socially awkward, kids that have self-identity issues or that don't feel secure in who they are. We also look at kids that have been homeless, kids that have been removed from their homes and put into the foster care system and they may run, kids that have poverty issues, all of those things in their environment actually add to their vulnerability. So it's not just the things that make every teenager vulnerable, right? So our own insecurities about who we are as that 13, 14 year old, I think everybody can close their eyes and remember how awkward that stage was for you and how vulnerable you were. Um, But then you add other components to it that are environmentally based that make them even more vulnerable and susceptible to being preyed on by somebody. The excerpt we hear next is from a February 2021 episode hosted by Associate Justice Michael Morgan, where he asks Court of Appeals Judge Fred Gore about his goals related to making a positive difference in his community. Justice Morgan speaks first. From your vantage point as a judge who's black, what goals or challenges have you decided to accept voluntarily in order to make a positive difference? Judge Gore? I think uh, from the component of my previous experience at the trial court and in the community. um, First, my previous experience in the trial court, I think um, being a judge who um, gravitated 
to juvenile court setting. Um, and there is a big need for um, judges who um, are willing to dig deeper into what's going on with our children. Um, sometimes our juvenile court system across the state is largely skewed to African-American youth. Um, and that you know, goes to a bigger picture as far as the dynamic of, of the makeup of our you know, school petitions and <clears throat> you know, um, socioeconomic situations in different communities. Um, but when those youth come into juvenile delinquency court, um, do they have a judge sitting to have some perspective of what truly is going on in their home life or the lack thereof? And then to be able to garner their attention in a way that makes them feel hopeful that the person sitting in the robe is truly making sure that the scales of justice that they are being judged by are truly balanced. And for me, that is something that I felt was a calling and a need that we continue to need because um, folks need to feel that uh, the system is working for them and that um, the, the lack of mental health services and uh, social uh, community services for some of our juveniles um, needs to be challenged. And I was a judge always willing to uh, peel back uh, the layers that were in the trial court to make sure that uh, DJJ or uh, the mental health services were doing absolutely everything. And so the impact that I could see that it would have on that young African-American male or female or even a young you know, white male or female that felt like nobody was listening to them, uh, that people were always talking at them versus talking with them and listening to them, I feel that I was able to serve that need and that, that calling uh, there. Uh, in the community, um, <clears throat> being that person that is the next only judge or lawyer that a youth will ever meet um, is something that I feel is a responsibility. Um, having the opportunity to just sit and talk with the youth at my church or uh, that are involved in nonprofit organizations in southeastern North Carolina that might not ever meet a judge um, or might only meet a judge if they're going to juvenile links court. And I've had the occasion to see some of former juvenile offenders now in high school um, that have come through the juvenile system that are doing well. Um, and to see them in the community or involved in a nonprofit that is uh, providing a service and them to come up and say, Judge, I ain't doing bad anymore. It's got to be real gratifying. That overwhelming sense of pride and that if I saved one, Justice Morgan, if I saved one, then I'm doing what God put me there to do. Next, we'll listen to an excerpt from our most downloaded episode of 2021, which featured a conversation between Chief Justice Commission on Professionalism Executive Director Mel Wright and Kinston attorney Jimbo Perry. We pick up with Mr. Perry reflecting on a particularly meaningful case he experienced during his legal career. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. I, I hope that um, all lawyers can get these questions 
and can reflect on them. Um, I have had the most fun reflecting on all the questions that you've sent. And they've been really helpful to me as I've kind of taken a step back and, and thought about life. So yeah, uh, and I've, uh, there are lots of cases that come to mind, but I'll start with one. And um, it was a guy, it was a capital case. And uh, my client was being housed up at Central Prison. And uh, those that are um, 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 capital defendants at Central Prison, they dress um, in a particular way. Uh, um, and um, I went up, I was up, up seeing him. And when you go into Central Prison, um, there are a lot of metal doors you have to go through. And um, you don't really get to sit down with your client and have physical contact. You're separated by thick glass with wire in the glass. And um, so I was in with my guy and we were finishing up our meeting and when my clients um, that I'm talking to, uh, when they are comfortable praying or would like prayer, I really like to do that with them. So this particular client was open to that and wanted me to pray for him. And so we put our hands up on the thick glass with a thick wire between the glass and uh, we closed our eyes and we prayed. And uh, at the end of the prayer, uh, our hands were still up. Um, I opened my eyes and because of the way in which the reflections of the glass were in the lighting on each side of the room, I could see uh, myself, uh, my head, in his prison garb. And it was uh, an experience I certainly will never forget, but I thought to myself, and we've all said this in different circumstances, but for the grace of God, you know, there sit I. Yeah. And it really is true, isn't it? Yeah. It really is true. But for the mentors and those who have poured themselves into us, um, you know, we'd be on the other side of the fence. Sure. In the next excerpt, we learn about one of the judicial branch's newest task forces, the Chief Justice's Task Force on ACES Informed Courts. We pick up with Lori Cole from the Court Programs Division of the Administrative Office of the Courts asking a question of Task Force Co-Chair, District Attorney, Ben David. Ms. Cole speaks first. Um, one question that popped in my head when I first saw the title of our task force um, was that we're talking about ACES-informed courts. And a lot of times in the media and other places, I've heard of trauma-informed courts. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what's the difference between those two and how will we in the courts be focusing on ACES? I'll take a stab at that. First, ACEs, it's an acronym, and it actually has two meanings, adverse childhood experiences and adverse community environments. We call it the pair of ACEs. And it's important that judicial officials, people who are at all levels of working in community with our children, understand what we're talking about. Um, you can assess a child by asking 10 questions about their home environment, whether there's abuse and neglect, and really know statistically a whole lot about what their future holds if we do nothing to help. Um, and if we are able to help, at, particularly at an early age, we can make them more resilient and quite literally change the trajectory of their lives. And then there are the adverse community environments that we're talking about. Kids who are living in high poverty, open-air drug transactions that are all around them, witnessing domestic violence every day. Those are the kids who we really need to put our arms around and say, 
we either need to get you out of that environment or get you um, the scaffolding of support necessary to flourish within that environment. And so why we are calling this the ACEs Informed Task Force is to all get on the same page, that there are things we can do in the lives of individual children and, in fact, in whole communities because we occupy those offices that have some influence in, in how we can shape the places we call home. Well, you know, prosecutors speak for the dead in murder trials, and we give victims a voice at the courthouse, and we're the conscience for our community anytime a crime occurs. What I've learned more about ACEs than anything is not from any book or movie. It's from the children I've met along the way and from looking at their experiences. And now having served as a prosecutor for 22 years, running into people 10 years later who have been in our drug treatment court or who you know, were a sibling of someone who was killed in a crime of violence and watching them go off to college or going off to prison themselves and learning about how important it is um, to understand that there are ripple effects from crime, that it not only impacts an individual, but it can impact a whole family unit and even in a whole neighborhood. And we can do something about um, making our communities safer and really helping the lives of individual people. If we understand that trauma is real and that there are predictable responses and outcomes that can come from understanding the science of resilience. Um, it is so important that we um, all speak the same language and understand that there's a difference between a traumatic event, what they call acute trauma, like a car wreck or a broken bone, versus someone who is undergoing toxic or chronic stress that's in an environment that is um, stressful every day an incest survivor, for instance, or a kid growing up in public housing with gunshots literally on a nightly basis. For the kids, particularly, who are growing up with toxic stress and chronic stress, um, those are the ones that we can help the most through this by looking at adverse childhood experiences that they're individually undergoing and the adverse community environments that might be all around them. That's the hope of this commission, and I am confident, based upon now two decades of working with victims, we know the path forward, and we need to act now. In 2021, All Things Judicial produced three episodes on the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission. In this excerpt, we hear Commission Executive Director Lindsey Geis-Smith ask a question of Commissioners John Boswell and Rick Glazier. Ms. Geis-Smith speaks first. What is something that each of you has learned from your time at the commission about the criminal justice system? And I'll start with Mr. Boswell. Like all human enterprises, the criminal justice system is flawed. Uh, it is subject to the failures that we all have. Uh, to our prejudices, our biases, to being overworked, to have confirmation bias, to um, believing that you already know the answer. Um, and although the U.S. criminal justice system is the best in the world, and there's no question about that, it, it still makes mistakes. And um, I guess at an intellectual level, I probably understood that, but having been involved in these many cases you see it play out, and so that's something that I learned. Mr. Glazier, what have you learned about the criminal justice system? Um, I, I think, um, again, 
lessons learned, um, not things that I don't think I um, didn't understand existed, but why they existed helps. It's been helped here. Uh, you know, I know there are, are real serious issues in cross-racial eyewitness identification. I know there are serious issues in um, uh, relating to confessions, and we've, I think uh, Johnson talked about that, and so did John. Um, I, I think that we know that there are serious issues in co-defendant testimony. We know there are serious issues in Brady or the lack of uh, exculpatory evidence being uh, circulated as it should. But why those things happen, I think, it's very helpful to understand that. Uh, and John just talked about some of those in, in, the, in the rush to judgment, in the confirmation bias, in, in implicit bias. And also simply an overwork. I mean, it, you know, we want to find bad actors. We want to blame someone. Sometimes there's no one to blame. Sometimes it is just human behavior and, 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 and factors that are external that are putting pressures, intense pressures on actors in the criminal justice process. That's not to say that there aren't cases and times in which there really are bad actors. But that's not generally what's causing this. And so I think I've, I've, it's been very helpful to learn why things are happening. And now to be able to, I hope, uh, to take some of those lessons learned and improve the system, just as this was a vast improvement in the system. And it still boggles my mind that we're the only state in the country some 15 years later that has an actual innocence commission. In the final excerpt of 2021, we listen in as I interview two tribal court judges from the Cherokee Sovereign Nation, Associate Judge Barbara Sunshine Parker and Chief Judge Monty Beck. Judge Parker responds first to my question, followed by Chief Judge Beck. So Judge Parker, um, for folks who might be a little less familiar with the Eastern Band of the Cherokee and uh, the system of government out here, can you explain a little bit about the structure of government? So I'll start with kind of a, a the bigger overview of the Eastern Band. So the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians is the only federally recognized tribe in the state of North Carolina. Um, we're located on the western end of North Carolina, and we touch five counties, Swain, Jackson, Cherokee, Graham, and Haywood um, are the counties where all of our tribal trust lands lie. Um, we are... Um, a sovereign government, so we are not, um, we don't have to follow the laws of North Carolina. We have our own sets of laws, um, our own court, our own police department, our own jail system. Um, we, we manage, uh, you know, our own hospital, our own child welfare services. We are our own government within the state of North Carolina. Um, we are governed by a chief and a vice chief, and our tribal council is our legislative body, and then we make up the judicial branch of the system. And Judge Beck, I'll turn to you. Um, what is the, the structure of the Cherokee courts? Well, we have the appellate court is the, uh, is the Cherokee Supreme Court. There are, generally we have three uh, justices. One is uh, Chief Justice Kirk Sanook, who actually started as a trial judge here when uh, the court was a what was referred to as a CFR court or a court of Indian offenses. And then in uh, 2000, uh, we uh, became a tribal court. It was uh, interestingly, it was it was it was to the day 21 years uh, before we were sworn in on April 1st that uh, we became a tribal court. Justice uh, Sanook was the uh, 
primarily the uh, trial judge initially. Uh, he's now the chief justice. Uh, we have two associate justices who are part-time and then occasionally uh, for the Supreme Court, if there are conflicts, they bring in other judges. Uh, for example, uh, one of our uh, associate justices is uh, Bob Hunter, who was on the Court of Appeals uh, with the uh, North Carolina. As far as the, then we have the trial court, um, Judge Parker and I are the two full-time trial judges. We also have a part-time judge, Jerry Waddell, who was the chief judge, I believe, in Newburn. And when he retired, he moved to Bryson City, which is in one of the counties that uh, uh, there are trust lands for uh, the tribe. And he fills in and handles family safety cases and conflict cases. And occasionally we have a couple of other uh, retired North Carolina judges uh, fill in for trial court. So we have appellate court, Supreme Court, we don't have a court of appeals. Our appellate court is the uh, Supreme Court. And then we have the uh, trial court. Thank you for listening to All Things Judicial, a podcast of the North Carolina Judicial Branch. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, which reflected on highlights from episodes produced in 2021. You can find these podcasts and more information about the Judicial Branch at nccords.gov. If you like what you hear, Please share our podcast with a friend and give us a five-star rating and review. Your help is essential in spreading the positive work of the Judicial Branch. I'm Chris Mears with the Judicial Branch Communications Office reminding you to keep all things judicial. Thanks for listening.